Hi, friends, and welcome back to the Pre-Trib Prophecy Podcast. This is your host, Joel Dover, and welcome to Season 3. Hey, we study Bible prophecy here from a dispensational, pre-tribulational, premillennial point of view, and we're always rapture ready. Grab your copy of God's Word and let's jump in together to see what the Lord has for us here on the Pre-Trib Prophecy Podcast. Well, hello, friends. Welcome back to the Pre-Trib Prophecy Podcast. This is your host, Joel Dover. Welcome to Session 2, Episode 2 of Season 3. This season, we're getting into the book of Revelation and so excited about what the Lord is going to do. We're going to learn. We're going to grow. We're going to see all the beautiful, wonderful things that God has for us in His Word. So I would like to encourage you to grab your copy of God's Word and let's begin to read together, study together, and to, to do so with open Bibles in our hands. Last time we were together in chapter 1, we were introduced to John and the setting of this revelation, which of course takes place on the Isle of Patmos. We saw the description in chapter 1 of Jesus the Christ in his glorified state, his glorified body, just a beautiful picture of what Jesus looks like right now in heaven. Now, as we get into chapters 2 and 3, we're seeing the beginning of the letters to the seven original recipients of the book of Revelation. That is, the seven churches of Asia. And the Lord will have, of course, an admonition for each one. As we prepare to jump into chapter 2, let me just remind you briefly of the structure of Revelation as revealed in Revelation 1.19. The Bible says in that verse, Write the things which you have seen, and the things which are, and the things which will take place after this. And so the whole book really follows that structure, friends. The things which John had seen are contained in chapter 1. When the Lord gives him this admonition in verse 19, write the things which you have seen. He's speaking, of course, about the revelation of himself in his glorified state that John records for us in chapter 1. When he speaks of the things which are, these seven churches are seven literal real churches that existed in the days of John's writing. And so he's writing to, you know, actual pastors, actual congregations in in Asia at the time. And then the things which will come after this really captures chapter 4 and following, which I believe are all future and all contained within the 70th week of Daniel. That is the tribulation period and the great tribulation period. We've unpacked that many times. Well, let's jump into uh, chapter 2. And as we get started, there are at least four prominent views of why the seven churches in chapter 2 and 3 are so relevant and so important. This letter, of course, is relevant because it shows us the state of these seven churches in John's day. So when John wrote these letters, there really were issues in these churches, some good, some bad. The Lord was laying it on John's heart to address real things that were taking place, real culture taking place in the day in which it was written. Now, friends, there are some believers when they read the book of Revelation, they believe that's the only relevant context of the seven churches. However, there are other views that I think uh, bear some merit. My opinion is, as a student of the Bible, that they represent more than just the uh, status of the churches in the days of John. We also know, just again, thinking about some preliminary things, that the letter is relevant because we all have ears to hear. And the Lord says, he who has an ear to hear, we're going to see that phrase over and over again in this section of Scripture, take to heart the message that Jesus has for the churches. So because we all have ears to hear, even in our day, uh, we know that what we're about to read is helpful to us for personal growth and edification. There will certainly be timeless truths that emerge from the letters to the seven churches here that we can apply in our own lives and in our own fellowships and our own churches, especially those of you who are listening, who are pastors and church leaders 
and are influencing congregations where you live and serve. We also know that this letter is relevant because it shows us, at least very possibly shows us, that in any age, churches from place to place may exhibit these same positive and negative qualities. I mean, it's not like when we look at these seven churches and we see their issues, their troubles, that they're the only church that ever lived in all the history of the church that ever had these particular issues. No, when we read these things, we believe that these churches are in some sense representative of the church in every age. And then there are some believers who take the view that this letter is, is especially relevant because it represents seven specific periods of church history. In this view, the seven letters really become a prophetic picture of the ages or the eons of the church. Some people see these letters as representing seven phases of spiritual history from John's writing until the end. Some people want to know, as I teach these things, well, pastor, where do you fall down on these things? I'll give you my personal point of view. Obviously, these are seven literal churches. Obviously, their message was relevant to that particular day. Obviously, there are timeless truths here that are relevant to us today. As for the idea that there are qualities in these churches that can be found in modern churches, absolutely, absolutely, no question about that. Certainly, there are some timeless truths that emerge here that we see uh, at work in churches in our community. You look around, you can see some of these qualities in uh, various churches in your community. Probably not hard to find seven churches in your own community that reflect at least in some way these things that we're seeing here in the Scripture. As far as the idea that these churches represent different eons or ages, like an unfolding, a spiritual unfolding of the history of the church leading up to the return of Christ, uh, I believe there is some merit in that, but I have a harder time um, jumping off that cliff. I have a harder time saying, yes, that's what it means. To me, that's more of a, hmm, maybe, let's just wait and see kind of a thing. All right, last time we were together, we were talking about the messengers to the church. I want to just mention to you briefly, there are two prominent views about the angel that's mentioned here in Revelation, the messenger, if you will, the angel to the seven churches. Some people really kind of point back to Daniel chapter 10, where, uh, of course, the glorious man is mentioned and revealed to Daniel. And there is a passage in Daniel chapter 10, beginning uh, around verse 12, talking about Daniel seeking after the Lord, and 21 days passes before he gets the answer, and there's the spiritual battle. Gabriel comes to reveal the answer to Daniel. He's, he's assisted in the spiritual realm by Michael, who helps him in battling against the prince, the prince of the kingdom of Persia. Uh, we believe, of course, that those are um, you know spiritual battles taking place behind the veil. Some people carry that idea forward to the book of Revelation and in chapter 1, where the Bible speaks of the angels of the churches, and now in chapter 2 and 3, uh, where beginning with each letter, the Bible says, and to the angel of such and such church. Some people believe that in the spiritual realm, there is an angel assigned to oversee each local fellowship. A second view, and this is the view that uh, that I take, I, the word angel, friends, it just means messenger. I believe that in the literal sense, the messenger of the church is the pastor or the bishop of the church, and I believe that the letters, um, logically, would have been addressed to the bishops or the pastors at these particular churches who would have in turn shared those with the congregation as led of the Lord. Let's move into a little deeper preliminary work here. Seven churches are identified in these two chapters. And simply for the sake of the length of these podcasts, we're going to break them down into uh, smaller groups. Today, we're going to look at two churches. We'll be talking about uh, the church at Ephesus and the church at Smyrna, and then we'll pick up after that in the next two or three weeks to finish the teaching on all seven churches. We're going to organize our study in a coherent framework 
And it helps us to know going in that there's a very familiar and coherent structure in each of the letters to the seven churches. As we begin to look at this, we're going to see that Jesus identifies himself to the churches, and he does that in a unique and special way. There's something that the Lord reveals differently about his personality, his character, his nature to each of these churches. And the way that Christ presents him to the churches is related to the content of the message that he's going to share with each one. Secondly, each of these letters contains an evaluation of the church. The Lord will either speak a word of commendation or a word of correction. And so we're going to read to try to identify, hey, what are these churches doing well? What are they doing not so well that needs some adjustment? Thirdly, we're going to look at the exhortation that Christ gives to each church. What action steps would the Lord have each of the churches to take? And then finally, we're going to look at the blessings that Jesus has uh, for the church if the exhortations that he gives are met with action on the part of the church. It's also important to note the order in which these seven churches are presented in Revelation. So if you were to grab a map and look at an ancient map of Asia Minor, the order here implies kind of a circuit. Each subsequent church is the one next door. So it's like the order of the churches in chapter 2 and 3 should dictate the order in which Revelation is read in each one of the churches, and it's presented in a very logical way. So uh, looking at the map, we're going to start, for example, with the church at Ephesus. That would be uh, very likely the first church that would have received this letter, and then they would have passed it on to the next church, uh, then to the next church, then to the next church, then to the next church, uh, all of those things, okay, and so on and so forth. So when we read about these churches, we're not only seeing the messages here, but we're seeing this circuit of churches and kind of getting the lay of the land, frankly, of what the church looked like in Asia Minor in John's day. Okay, let's get into chapter two. Uh, We'll begin with the first seven verses, looking at church number one. This is Ephesus, which is the loveless church. So uh, just reading out of the New King James Bible, the scripture says, to the angel of the church at Ephesus write, these things, says he who holds the seven stars in his right hand, who walks in the midst of the seven golden lampstands. I know your works, your labor, your patience, and that you cannot bear those who are evil. And you have tested those who say they are apostles and are not, and have found them liars. And you have persevered and have patience and have labored for my name's sake and have not become weary. Nevertheless, I have this against you, that you have left your first love. Remember, therefore, from where you have fallen, repent and do the first works, or else I will come to you quickly and remove your lampstand from its place, unless you repent. But this you have, that you hate the deeds of the Nicolaitans, which I also hate. He who has an ear, let him hear what the Spirit says to the churches. To him who overcomes, I will give to him to eat from the tree of life, which is in the midst of the paradise of God. Okay, that's the letter to the first church, the church at Ephesus. Let's work through it very quickly, see what ground we can cover here. Well, in verse 1, Christ identifies himself in a unique way. He says that he is the one who holds the seven stars in his right hand, who walks in the midst of the seven golden lampstands. Now, don't you love it, friends, when the Bible tells us what these things mean, as was the case in Revelation chapter 1 and verse 20? Because the scripture has already taught us that the seven stars are the angels or the messengers of the church. So the Lord is holding the messengers, what I believe to be the pastors or bishops, of the churches in his right hand. The seven lampstands, according to the same verse, Revelation 120, are the seven churches themselves. And so the Lord not only holds the uh, pastors, the bishops of the churches in his hand, he walks, his presence is in the midst of the churches. 
Now, friends, what can we learn from just this greeting alone? We, we learn that the Lord Jesus is personally involved with his church. He holds the pastors in his hands, and his presence is with his churches. He's aware of fellowship life, and he even lives it out with us. So as we read through these letters, we're going to become eerily aware, friends, that Jesus is presently involved with his bride. He is aware of issues in body life. Um, He is uh, alive and well, present, powerful in his church. Now, I want you to notice that although this specific word from God is for Ephesus, that when Jesus introduces himself, he says that he holds all the stars in his hands. He walks amidst all the lampstands. And so what's true for Ephesus is also true for all of the churches, including your church and my church, where we serve even in this modern day. But this specific revelation for Ephesus is a reminder that God has their bishop, their pastor in the palm of his hand, and that his presence is with them. In verses 2, 3, and 4, Christ gives an evaluation of the church. There are both commendations and corrections. Let's consider the commendations. In verse 2 and 3, we find that this is a working church. Jesus says, I know your works, your deeds. I know the things that you've been doing. It would seem as we look at this that the church at Ephesus was an active church, a busy church. They're doing stuff for the Lord. They're actively engaged in the work of the ministry. In fact, the Lord says, I know your labor. In the Greek, it means your hard work, your toilsome labor. This wasn't a church that drew back from difficult things. It wasn't a lazy church. It was not a church that was sitting on their hands. They were doing the Lord's work. They were busy. They were active. The Lord says they were also patient. They stayed with it even when it got hard. They were long-suffering in their labors. It was also a church that was critically discerning of others and in a good way. That Jesus said, you cannot bear those who are evil. In other words, they refused to endure evil men. This was not a tolerant church or a church tolerant about sin. They were serious about living holy lives. They were really towing the line. Jesus says, likewise, you've tested those, which means you've examined, you've scrutinized those who say that they are apostles but are not. You've found them to be liars. One of the issues in the early church, friends, was the presence of uh, false apostles, people who claim the authority of apostleship, uh, who were not validated. There are even, of course, uh, you know, pseudo-gospels and uh, pseudo-books that were written. So many times people make the claim that Bible books have been ripped out of the Bible, implying that they sometimes uh, have a message that the, the early church wanted to hide or cover up in some way. No, there are tests of inclusion for the books that were included in our New Testament. Many of them didn't make the cut, and many of them, because their authorship was in serious question, they may have been signed the Apostle Paul, but written by, you know, some guy pretending to be him, pretending to be an apostle. It was a false letter, and so they were excluded. Jesus said here, you've persevered, Ephesus. You've, you've had patience. You've labored. You've labored for Christ without becoming weary. The church was pressing ahead, even though they were working and living in troublesome times. The church also seemed to be doctrinally sound. When you compare and contrast this church to the others that are mentioned here, there's no mention of sexual sin or idolatry. There are no false teachers, but there also doesn't doesn't seem to be a whole lot of joy or happiness in the church. The impression we get from reading about this is that it's a church that worked hard, but so often churches that focus so much on their work turn into legalistic churches. And when you have an emphasis on works of righteousness without the spirit of love and grace, then we've learned just by watching and observing churches throughout history that the result is typically legalism. Now let's look at the corrections. We've seen the commendations. Jesus gives them a number of corrections. He says, nevertheless, 
which of course is a powerful word. It's a word that indicates that all the previous things the Lord had committed them for were viewed by the Lord as great qualities in the church, commendable qualities. But Jesus has this against them. He says, you have left your first love. I want us to consider the teaching from Jesus in Matthew 22, 35, 36, and 37. One of them, a lawyer, asked him a question testing Jesus and saying, Teacher, which is the greatest commandment in the law? Jesus said to him, You shall love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, in all your mind. The first love of the church is Jesus. In every church, in every age, Jesus, Jesus, Jesus. These people were saved. They had initially fallen in love with Jesus. They knew the Lord. They understood the gospel, but they had left their first love. It seems that the church had drifted into a loveless environment, maybe a legalistic environment. They were busy. They were doing a lot for the Lord. But it wasn't a church known anymore for their love for Jesus. They'd become known for their works of righteousness, but not for their love for Christ. Friends, I want you to know that whenever the love of the Lord is missing from a church, love for people will also be absent. I want you to also note that nowhere does Jesus ask them to choose between truth and love. They're not exclusive ideas. He isn't saying, hey, you've got... Too much of an emphasis on truth or works or discernment. No, he's just saying that, look, the work you're doing is great, but you're missing your first love. You've left your first love. And so how were they instructed to fix it? Verse 5 and 6, Christ exhorts them to remember where they've come from. Think back to how it used to be when love ruled in the church. Jesus says, repent and do the first works. Turn around. Be like you were in the beginning. Rediscover your love for Christ. Man, they needed a revival of their Jesus love. Notice that their lack of love was a sin to be repented of. Notice also that they hadn't always been this way. They became loveless over time. They used to be a church in love with Jesus, but they've drifted. Now, here's the warning from the Lord. Jesus says, you've got to find your first love again or else I will come to you quickly and remove your lampstand from its place unless you repent. It's a warning from the Lord that he'll remove them from being a church, or at least, at the very least, remove his presence from the church. Ooh, I don't want to be a part of a church where the presence of the Lord is absent. I don't want to be in a church where Ichabod is written spiritually over the back door of the church. Two more things very quickly. Verse 6, Jesus said, this you have. You hate the deeds of the Nicolaitans, which I also hate. Now, notice that Jesus says there's no love, but curiously, (laughs) this church is known for who it hates. In this case, he's agreeing with them because the Nicolaitans were false teachers teaching false doctrines. Nonetheless, the overarching message here is that, look, Jesus would have the church to be known for who it loves and less for who it hates. And it's so important for us to cling to our first love and not just fall in love with our own works and self-righteousness and legalism and those kind of things. Verse 7, Jesus promises to bless them if they respond. He says, he who has an ear to hear, let him hear. That's a Bible way of saying, friends, if you have an ear, if you have ears on the side of your head, then pay attention and comprehend this. He says, let he who has an ear hear what the Spirit says to the church is. Now, notice that's plural. Again, this is a message to Ephesus, but it's applicable in all the churches. All the churches need the reminder to remember their first love. He says to him who overcomes, I will give to eat from the tree of life, which is in the midst of the paradise of God. We'll read about that in Revelation 22, which is a great description of heaven when we get there. So friends, the church everywhere needs to uphold its first love, that is love for Jesus. And we're warned here, a principle we can draw out is not to allow uh, our works to become the measure of our righteousness. We're exhorted to be in love with Jesus and to be a church that loves other people, while at the same time being doctrinally pure and uncompromised by worldliness and false teachers. And that brings us to verse 8 through 11. As we look at Smyrna, 
which is the persecuted church. Pick up with me in your copy of God's Word. And again, in the New King James Version, the Bible says, And to the angel of the church in Smyrna write, These things, says the first and the last, who was dead and who came to life. I know your works, tribulation, and poverty, but you are rich. And I know the blasphemy of those who say they are Jews and are not, but are a synagogue of Satan. Do not fear any of those things which you are about to suffer. Indeed, the devil is about to throw some of you into prison, that you may be tested, and you will have tribulation ten days. Be faithful until death, and I will give you the crown of life. He who has an ear, let him hear what the Spirit says to the churches. He who overcomes shall not be hurt by the second death. All right, let's look at the identity of Christ. We'll follow the same sort of pattern. He says here in verse 8, I am the first and the last. I am the Alpha and the Omega. I am the beginning and the end. This, of course, is one of the ways that Jesus speaks of his eternal nature. Jesus, our Christ, preexisted all of creation. He is eternal. Everything was made by him, and everything in between the beginning and the end belongs to him. He speaks here of the crucifixion and the resurrection. He says, I was dead. And I came back to life. These acts, of course, bought our salvation, after which the church was born on Pentecost Sunday. In verse 9, as we think about Christ's evaluation of the church, again, thinking through the lenses of commendations and corrections, we begin with the commendations. Jesus says, I know your works, your tribulation. In the Greek, it means the pressure, the persecution that you're dealing with. The Lord says, I know your poverty. In the Greek, again, it means that they were destitute and they were poor. This was not a wealthy church. It was a struggling, poor church under persecution and trouble. But Jesus, in parentheses, says, but you are rich. Friends, we can be poor by the world's measures, impoverished, persecuted heavily, but rich in the things of faith. And that was the church here at Smyrna. Jesus says, nonetheless, you are rich. Obviously, he's speaking of those spiritual riches of which we discussed, the richest faith in the Lord. In 2 Corinthians chapter 6, verse 4 to 10, the Bible reads, But in all things we commend ourselves as ministers of God, in much patience, in tribulations, in needs and distresses, in stripes, in imprisonments, in tumults, in labors, in sleeplessness, in fastings, by purity, by knowledge, by longsuffering, by kindness, by the Holy Spirit, by sincere love, by the word of truth, by the power of God, by the armor of righteousness on the right hand and on the left, by honor and dishonor, by evil report and good report, as deceivers and yet true, as unknown and yet well known, as dying and, as, and behold we live, as chastened and yet not killed, as sorrowful yet always rejoicing, as poor yet making many rich, as having nothing, listen, and yet possessing all things. Friends, I want you to know in this life, true riches, true wealth, is found in knowing Jesus Christ. And by comparison, you know this, this world has nothing to offer us that compares in any measure of value to knowing Jesus Christ as our Savior and the Lord. Now the Lord says, I know the blasphemy of those who say they are Jews and are not, but they're a synagogue of Satan. There was, of course, a synagogue in Smyrna where Jews worshipped. Uh, they were a significant part of the persecution of the church, it would seem. And in those early days, persecution came from a number of different different places. We know that. And it would seem that they were claiming to be, of course, the people of God, but were persecuting the children of God through Jesus Christ. The historical record may shed some light here, too. There are two church fathers, Tertullian and Irenaeus, who both record that Polycarp was the pastor at Smyrna, uh, the angel, if you will, the bishop there. And apparently the Jews and pagans had joined together to persecute the church in Smyrna and determined to cast Polycarp alive into a den of lions. But for whatever reason, unknown to history, they were prevented from doing so. 
And so they settled for a less gruesome death, and they burned Polycarp at the stake. So the church fathers specifically record the men of the synagogue there carrying the wood for the fire. And certainly they were dealing with some intense hardship, tribulation, and persecution. All right, so those are the commendations. Let's think about the corrections. Well, if you look carefully at the scripture, there are no corrections. There are two of the seven churches that the Lord does not correct in any way. This is one. Uh, Praise the Lord. Sometimes the church gets it right. And so we praise God for that. Look at verse 10 again. Christ makes exhortations to the church. He says, do not fear any of the things which you are about to suffer. There's a future coming. Friends, it's a future of suffering. Man, I'm sure they didn't want to hear that. Lord, can you just take us away from the suffering? Can you take us through the suffering? The Lord says, nope, the suffering is coming and don't be afraid of it. It's going to be a demonic attack. Jesus says the devil is about to throw some of you into prison. So when the Lord says that, we know that Satan is driving this thing. You'll be tested and have tribulation for 10 days. Some of them are not going to survive it. The Lord says, be faithful unto death. Some of them are facing martyrdom for following the Lord Jesus Christ. He told them about it in advance. And there's a time set forth for this intense but brief trial. And he says to the church, you've been faithful and you need to brace for what's coming. Brace for this coming impact. In verse 11, here's the blessing from the Lord. If they respond, he says, Be faithful unto death, and I will give you the crown of life. Some of them are going to become martyrs, but there is a reward, the crown of life. Now, friends, the crown of life is mentioned only one other time in the Bible. It's in James chapter 1 and verse 12, where the Bible reads, Blessed is the man who endures temptation, for when he has been approved, he will receive the crown of life, which the Lord has promised to those who love him. Obviously, this is everlasting life. It's life with the Lord in heaven. It's one of the rewards. And of course, in the Bible, often our rewards in heaven are put in terms of like athleticism from their day, uh, where someone who may have finished, you know, first place in a foot race or in some kind of um, contest in Greek life would have been awarded with a particular crown or a wreath. And so this is simply speaking of the victor's reward. If you will endure, if you'll stay stay true, go all the way. Hey, there's a reward coming from you. And Jesus says here, he who has an ear to hear, uh, you need to hear. He who overcomes shall not be hurt by the second death. Well, what in the world is this, a second death? What an interesting phrase. If we jump ahead to Revelation chapter 20 and verse 6, the Bible reads, blessed and holy is he who has part in the first resurrection, over such the second death has no power, but they shall be priests of God and of Christ and shall reign with him for a thousand years. Then death and Hades were cast into the lake of fire. This is the second death. And so friends, one of the Bible principles that I've tried to teach you in this podcast is that whenever it's possible, we have to try to let scripture interpret scripture. So here in Revelation 20, the scripture says that this uh, casting of death in Hades into the lake of fire, this is the second death. And then we read further in Revelation 21, 8, but the cowardly, unbelieving, abominable murderers, sexually immoral, immoral sorcerers, idolaters, and all liars shall have their part in the lake which burns with fire and brimstone, which is the second death, all right? And so obviously the second death is uh, punishment for the unbeliever, punishment for the wicked. Jesus is saying, look, Go all the way. Stay just stay all the way. You're gonna you're gonna make it. Don't be afraid. Some of you, you're gonna you're gonna pass away as martyrs, but listen, um, you'll be spared from the second death. There's a reward coming for you. Don't fear what is to come. You have the promise of everlasting life. So I want to say to you, whether we're wealthy or poor, whether the greatest riches that we can have are are, are the spiritual riches of Jesus Christ in our lives, we also need to be aware that being a Christian doesn't spare us from hard times. 
historically, just think about the church, think about Christ himself, the life of the apostles. Uh, Historically, Christ has not spared the church from persecution, from suffering, from hardship, even martyrdom. And I want to say to you, friends, please note this. It is a lie and a deception when a pastor or a church teaches that if you just know Jesus and if you follow Jesus, he'll spare you from all trouble and make you wealthy and give you great health and and prosperity. I want to say to you just very strongly, the prosperity gospel of health and wealth and prosperity is not biblical. It is another gospel. It's a false gospel. Our focus needs to be on the eternal, not the temporary. Life is not about the fleeting pleasures of life. It's not about getting a vacation home or a uh, $200,000 RV or having your bank accounts blessed tremendously. The kingdom life is about sharing the gospel and making disciples and growing in Christ and honoring Jesus and enjoying our walk with Him. These are the things of spiritual wealth. So don't get caught up with the fraud and realize that the Lord does not always spare His church from trouble. This world is not our home, friends. We are only passing through. Well, friends, that's where we'll stop for the day. And I thank you for being such a wonderful, attentive listener here on the Pre-Trib Prophecy Podcast. Next time we'll pick up, we'll cover two or three more churches as the Lord leads. But I'd like to encourage you as we dwell and meditate on these two that we've learned about today. What message would the Lord have for us? How would the Lord speak to us in these things? Let us remember our first love. Let us remember to love Jesus with all of our heart, soul, mind, and strength, to love others as we love ourselves. And let us remember just to stay true in the midst of the world's persecutions and tribulations and trials. There is a crown laid up for us in the kingdom of heaven. Hey, do me one favor. As we begin to close this podcast episode today, would you help us to get the word out about the podcast by sharing this with a pastor, a small group leader, Sunday school teacher, maybe a family member or a friend who might be interested in this kind of content? And would you please, if you haven't already, like and subscribe to get updates every time we drop new content. Well, friend, thank you again for listening here on the Pre-Trib Prophecy Podcast. We'll see you next time. Hope you have a wonderful week. God bless you.